put that all together in a nice stage to shaken, not stirred cocktail. Uh, let's get to the story of the day, which continues to be the same story that it has been for the last couple of days, since Saturday night, really. And that is what's going on with Peel Police and Ijaz Chowdhury, with the 62-year-old man who was shot and killed by police as they responded to a person in distress call. Uh, there will be a memorial at 6.15 tonight uh, in Malton for Mr. Chowdhury. His family members continue to call for justice, for some kind of transparency, for some kind some kind of answers about why did police answer the way they did? Why did they respond the way they did? And day in and day out, we get more and more information about other disturbing incidents. Like another one, a Mississauga woman claiming that police used excessive force on her on Mother's Day, and the SIU is now investigating that. They put out a press release today saying, we're close, we're almost done, we're going to tell you something sometime soon. The Special Investigations Unit is a civilian agency that oversees the police here in Ontario. And when the SIU invokes its mandate, and it can do so for a fairly wide range of instances, essentially any time that there is an interaction between police and a civilian and results in some kind of injury to the civilian, then the SIU's mandate is invoked. So we have situations like the tragic uh, car accident uh, last week that killed the mother and three children. The SIU has invoked its mandate because it appears that a police officer and a police cruiser observed one of the vehicles speeding before it ran a red light and T-boned the vehicle, killing uh, that family, although we don't know because we are still waiting for information. So it can be something like that, or it can be something like what happened to Regis uh, Regis Korchinski-Paquette, my apologies, in which case the SIU invokes its mandate because police responded and the 29-year-old woman fell to her death from a balcony, and yet we still don't have any kind of information. And what we have heard repeatedly is that there are many communities and many people in this province who simply do not have faith in the SIU. We have heard calls from mayors for reform of the agency. We have heard calls from police, from the police chief of Peel, from the police chief of of Toronto, saying, please hurry up. Move it along. Here's what Doug Ford said this week when when he was asked, do you have confidence in the Special Investigations Unit? No, none of us know the exact details until the SIU goes in there and does their investigation. Uh, my heart and prayers go out, go out to the family that lost a loved one, no matter what happened. Right? This is a, a terrible situation, unfortunate. But let's let's see what uh, the report says, uh, because I, I just don't believe in in pointing fingers uh, at any uh, group, any organization. That is Doug Ford talking about what happened with Ijaz Chowdhury specifically when he expresses his condolences but says he has confidence in the Special Investigations Unit and we will just simply have to wait for the report. And keep in mind that it is often months and months before the SIU releases any kind of report. Well now, 
you heard what the Premier had to say. Yesterday on this program, Mohammed Hashim, who is an advocate for race relations and is a close contact to, to the Chaudhry family, was on this radio station. I asked him the same question. Do you have confidence in the SIU? Here's his answer. Time and time and over again, we've we've seen that, you know, it's like the mentality of police is about protecting their own. For some odd reason, they have a sense of victimhood that no one believes their narrative, that they're trying their best and that they are doing the right thing and they can all, they, and, and that if someone makes a mistake, well, it's a little bit of a mistake, it's not that big a deal. But the sense of protectionism that is within the cop culture is so pervasive that you see them always rally around each other. The answer there, no. That the community does not have confidence in the SIU. Mayor Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga, was also on this radio show earlier this week. I asked her, does this community in question in Malton, they have confidence in the Special Investigations Unit? Here's the mayor. So we know that the SIU is investigating, so you know I don't, I can't go into any details of what happened. In fact, I'm not only the mayor, but I actually sit on the police board, so we have to respect the process and await for the results of the investigation. And I, I know that... <laughs> You know, that frustrates the community and it frustrates me. And that's why I tweeted, I asked that the SIU act expeditiously in their investigation uh, and release their findings as soon as possible. That is Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie saying that the community in question does not have confidence. And she admitted such on this radio show. On the line is the former director of the Special Investigations Unit, Ian Scott. Welcome to the program, Ian. Thank you. Does the SIU, is it in need of reform? No. I mean, it, it, it can always be made better, but its central mandate, which is to deal with criminal investigations, whether on-duty police officers are involved in death, serious injury, and allegations of sexual assault, in my view, that mandate ought not to change. What about the manner in which the SIU uh, informs the public, the fact that when the mandate comes into effect, the, the police cannot say anything, we have this absence of information, and we have a lack of trust? Well, um, Right now, and this may change under the new legislation, um, the police services, of course, are prohibited from giving out information um, other than the fact the SIU is conducting the investigation. And the SIU is actually, under the uh, law, not permitted during the course of the investigation to make any public statements about the investigation unless the statement is aimed at preserving the integrity of the investigation, for example, trying to find other witnesses. Now, there's a bit of a history to all that. Uh, when the SIU started in the 1990s and the, um, the mandate was being invoked in the, in the 1990s, quite often police services were getting ahead of the SIU and uh, giving out press releases, which largely exonerated the officers before the investigation was completed. So that's one of the reasons why the regulation was put into effect. It may be changing on the new legislation, but right now the SIU is kind of restricted what they can say. And the theory is, is that they will conduct a thorough investigation and, and the director, uh, when I was there, but obviously there's a new director, makes the decision on whether a criminal charge is going to be laid or not. 
If a criminal charge is laid, not much is said because the theory is, is that it will work its way out through the criminal justice system, which is really the ultimate disclosure because anybody, including any member of the media, can go and watch the trial. If no charges are laid, which is the vast majority of cases, um, when I was there, and, and I think this tradition has been continued, there's a lengthy uh, report written, and that largely becomes part of a press release. And in fact, I think nowadays, change the point where the entire report is being released uh, to the public. Um, it, now, I can understand the frustration of the public. They, they want very fast answers to these things. But you have to remember the mandate of the SIU. It's criminal. And um, you, if, if we're going to conduct a criminal investigation, I think every, everybody obviously wants it done thoroughly. And if, indeed, a criminal charge is going to be laid, um, there's going to be an immediate cry from the uh, defense lawyer acting for the officer for disclosure of the entire file. If it's not well uh, sort of packaged at that stage, it can lead to delays in the criminal justice system, which can lead to applications to stay the, uh, stay the proceedings in a criminal case. So, I, you know, my only comment to be to the public uh, on this particular issue is uh, please be patient. It's more important that there be a thorough investigation and that the investigation be in a position to thoroughly report to the public, or if a charge is laid, to be accountable to the criminal justice system. Do you agree that the SIU is perhaps staffed with too many former police officers and there's too close a tie to police from the SIU? Well, the SIU has made an effort, certainly I did when I was there, and I think it's continued to um, hire more civilian investigators, uh, full-time civilian investigators. Um, the, 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 the thing you run into is you do need people with experience I mean, when, it, when a charge is laid, and, you know, I'll be the first to admit they're relatively rare, but when I was there over a period of five years, I think I laid over 50 charges, um, with probably the most high-profile one being the Sammy Yatim case where Constable Forcillo was charged with, uh, with murder. Um, you, ha- you actually have to have investigators who have the ability to stand up um, under cross-examination at trial. And... Um, you know, I've done defense work, mostly I've been a prosecutor, but I've done defense work. And, I mean, classically what defense lawyers are going to do is probe the integrity of the investigation. And um, it takes time to be a good homicide officer. So um, I'm of the view you, you want a mixed group of uh, people with experience and civilian investigators. They can be trained. There's nothing sort of in one's DNA that means you cannot be a good homicide investigator, but it does take time. And so I think over time, um, ultimately may become more civilianized, but I personally subscribe to a mixture of former officers and civilians. And i got to say, this is a big step ahead of many other provinces that use seconded police officers. So in effect, what happens is, like, for example, in Alberta, which has ACER, the um, Alberta in, uh, Serious Incident Response Team, they have a bunch of uh, more, uh, seconded officers who are going to go there for a while and go back into regular policing. So it's a step um, ahead of that in terms of independence. It may not be perfect, but at the end of the day, we need people that stand up to that kind of scrutiny in our criminal justice system. Ian Scott, former director of the Special Investigations Unit. Ian, I really appreciate your perspective as we continue to discuss policing in Ontario and in this country. Thank you very much. So some interesting perspective there. 
I think the problem continues to be, and I, I think I, I take Mr. Scott's point there that the SIU, of course, is mandated legally by legislation on what it can say and how it acts. So when you hear me talk about the need for reform for the SIU, and when you hear me talk about the unacceptable, the unacceptable silence from that organization, I want you to understand that I'm not blaming that organization because it is a creation of the provincial government. The buck stops with the Ford government. It needs to step in, and it needs to make changes, because there is a lack of confidence in the police watchdog, in the police oversight, and we are in a crisis with policing for a great number of reasons. And if we cannot, as the public, have confidence in a fast and fair, a fast and fair ruling from the SIU. And I understand that if you're talking about charges, you got to cross all the T's, dot all the I's. But investigations, criminal investigations from the police, homicide investigations, they don't just say, we'll get back to you in 18 months. The wait is not acceptable. There needs to be change. The SIU needs to be reformed. As we continue our discussion this hour about the future of policing and what kind of police force do we want in this country and in this province, and what is it that we want police to do? In time and time again, we bring you news stories of tragic outcomes as police respond to mental health calls. And not just in this province. You may have seen the video from British Columbia that emerged yesterday that shows a, uh, an officer dragging a young woman down a hallway and then standing on her head. This young woman was in a mental health distress, and there are now allegations that this officer used excessive force. And the list of names in our own province is long. I think back to, you know, when I was a, a, a crime reporter, the name Otto Voss. Otto Voss was a, a guy with a, a mental health issue, and he went to a 7-Eleven, and he was having an episode, and police came there, and he died. And time and time again, it happens. And we don't seem to get anywhere. And then yesterday, we have Cam H. Pardon me. Yeah, it's pardon me, Cam H., Sometimes I get my sick kids and my Cam H is mixed up. Cam H yesterday saying yesterday, it's time that we start saying that police do not go to mental health calls. And I, I think the system that we have in place where we embed mental health experts with police officers, that's a step in the right direction. But so far, we've seen situations where, well, those people aren't called anyway. They don't come. They don't come to the call. But the people with guns do. Robin Urbach is a columnist with the Globe and Mail, and she has a column that says, as long as police with weapons respond to mental health calls, people will continue to die. She joins me on the line. Hi, Robin. Hi, thanks for having me. When we talk about how we have to reimagine police, what what do you think that means? Well, you're right in saying we're sort of on the way to recognizing, I guess, in a very incremental kind of slow way that Police aren't the people who should be first on the scene or perhaps even at all on the scene 
when we get mental health distress calls simply because this is not their job, really. It's become their job. Um, and we see a disproportionate number of calls that come into 911 and that see police as the first responders on the scene are because of mental health calls, wellness calls, people in crisis and what have you. But so often they end tragically and needlessly tragically. Um, the irony is that you mentioned the, the case of the woman at UBC, the video surveillance that a lot of us have now seen of the woman being dragged out of her uh, unit by an RCMP officer. Um, the irony in that case, and in so many cases, that the, it was that the police were called because I believe it was her boyfriend was concerned about her welfare and concerned that she was potentially harming herself. Um, and in making these calls, what, what happens is the police come and allegedly, I suppose, harm the vulnerable individuals themselves. So it doesn't reduce harm really in any way. It just transfers the, the perpetrator, if you will, of that harm from, from the individual to someone else. So um, it is not working, obviously. We've been doing the same thing for years. We've started to see cropping up among different police forces these kind of hybrid programs that will dispatch mental health workers with medics and police officers to respond to these calls. But the problem is twofold. One, there aren't enough of them. So when you talk about a region like Peel, for example, they only have a couple of task force on hand and more than a couple of calls come in every night of people in mental distress. So it becomes a rationing exercise in where do these teams ultimately get deployed. And uh, number two, they're, they're not being sent in situations where potentially there is the possibility of a violent confrontation or uh, danger in some sort of respect, which seems to make sense. You don't want to send a mental health worker to a place where he or she may possibly be the subject of violence. But on the same hand, I mean, these are what these, these teams are for. And if they're not being used and dispatched appropriately, and, and if police are being sent in their stead, we're going to continue to see these incidences where vulnerable people are shot, killed, injured, or harmed in one way or another. I'm speaking with Robin Urbach, who is a columnist with the Globe and Mail. Robin, you make a good point in your column that, you know, we ask police to do all of these things, and we're, we're basically we ask them to be mental health workers. And, you know, you point out if they wanted to do that, they probably would have chosen that profession for themselves in the beginning. So we ask a lot of police. But is it not time to say, you know, especially to the unions and, and the forces that, you know, shape our budgets and where we spend our resources, say, well, listen, we just got to take some money back from you and put it over here because we don't need so many people with guns. We need more people with mental health training. Right. The problem is, is that, that there's a political aspect to it, and the, the police unions are quite powerful entities, and their whole purpose is to make sure that the money allocated to the police stays within the police service and, and grows within the police service. So there's obviously going to be objections to any sort of efforts to divert some funds away from from the police and into these other programs. But we've seen with, with programs, I mentioned one in my column, it's called Cahoots, and it started in a city in Oregon about 30 years ago. And it's a mental health response team that diverts funds away from the police. Um, it's dispatched. Uh, dispatches a medic and a mental health uh, worker to this scene of some person in crisis or a mental health issue. Um, these people arrive without police, 
without weapons, without uniforms, and they've seen really tremendous success. Um, according to their organizers, they've only had to call police for backup about 1% of the time. No one's been seriously injured, and it costs a lot less, frankly, than, than sending the police to respond to these calls. So it seems to make sense all the way around. The problem is, as, as you mentioned, the resistance from police unions and police forces that want to keep money, frankly, with, within their services. And two, I think there's just a lack of ambition or perhaps courage, or we're just so used to doing things the way that we've been doing them so long, even though they don't seem to be working. But it sounds really counterintuitive to respond to a, a potentially volatile situation with people who aren't armed, who don't have weapons, who don't have that, that brute force that we see with police. So it sounds as if we'd be taking a massive risk to adopt a program like this, perhaps in Canada. But the success, I think, speaks to itself. So we need to find that political courage and that ambition and that really will to, to do something different, recognizing that what we've been doing so, for so long just simply is not working anymore. Robin, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the program today. Thank you. Take care. As Robin Urbach, who's a columnist for the Globe and Mail, and she asks a great question. Do we have the will? Do we have the courage? Do we have the strength to say, no, I'm not going to listen to the argument about, oh, if we take money away from the police, that crime will be rampant. Because you know that that is what will be said. And you know that the political forces out there will try and capitalize on the fear. Oh, he's trying to take away the police. We have to rethink this. It's time. We can't keep doing this. We can't keep watching people die. 